Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Uh, one of the um, examples of uh, evolution that um, Darwin talked about and in the origin of species is um, um, was uh, the, the different shapes of dog uh, skulls in particular and I think um, you know dogs are one of the most uh, common uh, domesticated animals probably um, around the around the world um, and most many many cultures had uh, had pet dogs and of course there's all the different types of of dogs um, and um, you know, we when you go for a walk in a park or along a beach where dogs are allowed, you see all the different uh, types of dogs, and owners are very excited about their their dogs. And you know, we've we've um, with our children, we've had uh, quite a quite a few dogs from um, Jack Russell uh, Terriers um, and um, Dalmatians and um, Kelpies, um, and um, they've uh, some of the dogs have been. You know, you can get certainly get very very attached to to these um, to these dogs, and um, and of course we've had friends that have a range of all different types of dogs, from tiny little dogs to. To, to great big dogs, <laughs> it certainly would worry me. <laughs> um, and uh, of course, we know that there are uh, breeds from the little, you know, Pinkanese uh, breeds that can weigh just, you know, two and a half kilos um, to, um, you know, a big uh, uh, Bazoi uh, breeds that can weigh more than 45 kilograms. Um, and of course, there's huge uh, variation in between with these dogs. But one of the interesting things is that dogs have been bred for a long period of time, and um, it's interesting that, uh, for example, St. Bernards that we associated, you know, rescuing people in the Swiss Alps with their little cask of. Um, uh, I'm not sure what sort of uh, alcohol was uh, was in the cast, but it was to uh, apparently to help revive the the people in the snow, um, which is quite quite interesting actually because uh, spirits, of course, um, can help you feel warmer by causing this flush uh, of circulation to the skin, but they also in, uh, promote, if, if I recall, more rapid heat loss. So um, it was based on feelings uh, rather than science, I think. Uh, but I was reading a really interesting article on uh, the extreme plasticity in the skull shape of dogs by a um, by Rebecca Gear, who uh, has a doctorate in uh, veterinary medicine. And um, this was another article in that uh, very interesting book, Design and Catastrophe, uh, published by Andrews University Press uh, back in uh, uh, 2021. And um, according to the study, for example, of St Bernard's, and she points out that their skulls have been evaluated over 120 years and they've undergone quite a, a lot of uh, 
of, of, of transformation during that, that time. Um, and it's been suggested that the absence of survival pressures on dogs and their selective breeding and feeding have allowed all the different shapes to occur, as um, particularly some breeds would not survive long um, without human protection. Well, it's interesting, I was reading about the, uh, the English uh, uh, bulldog, and of course the purebred bulldog has been um, bred um, and its reproduction controlled by humans for a long time. Um, and it's you know got to the point that um, the females have to be artificially inseminated because uh, they now uh, their bone structures are, are such that they can't really hold up the weight of a male uh, during breeding, and um, and the pups are delivered by caesarean section as the pelvic canal is too narrow now for natural birth um, of the large shouldered. Uh, offspring that has been bred to have those very large shoulders. And um, there's been other changes in the bulldog um, accord uh, as well. There's a, an airway uh, disease in which uh, the soft palate's uh, elongated and can drop into the upper larynx, causing part obstruction. Um, this results in a number of uh, you know, airway problems uh, for these dogs. Um, so uh, they have noisy breathing uh, they can't tolerate much exercise or heat so there's a whole lot of diseases then that have accumulated in these animals and so in these bulldogs in particular and so it's unlikely that now a bulldog would um, um Survived, And so all these selection traits have resulted in reduced vigour and the viability of the English bulldog. So, of course, this is the antithesis of evolution. Um, but as the author points out, it hasn't resulted in the bulldog becoming something than other dog. It's still a dog with all these extreme breeding changes that uh, have happened. And it's interesting that the um, you know, plasticity of the dog's skull uh, is claimed under the evolutionary model to be the removal of selective pressures in wild survival. Uh, but it, as the author points out, uh, Dr Greer points out, but even in the absence of those constraints and in the presence of the most extreme breeding changes that can be implemented by humans, the domestic dog remains a dog. Um, and this is, you know, it's such a, you know, I think most of us are, are familiar with dogs. Um, we see them around and all the different shapes. When you, you know, just um, imagine in your mind all the different shapes of the skulls that, that dogs um, have. Um, and there's a huge variation there. And the author here um, points out that the, the, the different skull shapes all seem to point to different examples of design. And she uses the example, she points out, for example, a word processing program allows for books, pamphlets, letters, and etc. to be produced in different formats and layouts. 
But no matter how the settings are adjusted, a word processor program does not become a video game. And so um, the domestic dog, or potentially the entire Canis group, uh, seems to be designed in a similar fashion. Um, from her veterinary experience and um, understanding, uh, she points out that the different shapes and size potentials are in the system, such as the skulls of the various dogs, may not even appear to be of the same order of animal, and yet it remains Canis domesticus. And I think this is a, an important uh, uh, thing. If you uh, look at um, the, you know, the, there's huge differences in the shapes of, um, of, of dog skulls. And uh, I can remember looking at a, uh, a chart of the different skulls, and they look so different when you see these skulls that, um, you know, to someone like myself, I'd say, well, they're completely different species of, of animals, but they're, they're not. Um, and it's interesting, this uh, 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 doctor of veterinary medicine points out that um, it seems that uh, the system was so designed that a domestic dog can be bred to have a long nose or a short nose, uh, can have an upward or a downward facing nose, it can have a large head or a small head, it can have a long or a short body, um, it can have uh, long or short legs, all sorts of other um, variations. But it's as if these codes were already there in the, in, the, in the dog to have this huge amount of variation that can be bred in all the different dogs can be bred that way. And so again, it points to the, the biblical model of back in uh, Noah's flood with the ark, just one type of dog going into the ark, carrying all these genetic variation and then due to the different um, climates and situations and terrain and so forth, we had uh, over time very quickly all the different sized dogs and shapes of bread. And it's interesting that, um, again, with all the breeding that we've done, we haven't been able to breed a different type of animal. It's still a dog. And this is with de deliberate breeding. Um, and I, it reminds me of the Richard Lenski's experiment with bacteria where he bred E. coli bacteria and they're through over 70,000 generations and they're still E. coli bacteria. Bred over that, you know, 70,000 generations, they, they haven't changed. So there's this constraint within the DNA to um, keep these organisms true to their particular um, you know, kind. The, um, the author, uh, Dr. Gear, points out another thing in her article uh, on dogs and dog skull plasticity, that extreme changes in a domestic dog skull and formation give rise to um, an interesting interpretation in terms of the fossil record. Uh, she says, in many cases, we only have fossils to tell us of an extinct species or animal. We don't have DNA or other data available to make decisions on what species or group that fossil may fit into. 
And if we did not know the plasticity of a dog skull and found a fossil skull of both a Pinkanese and a Borzoi or a, chicken, uh, a Chihuahua or a Greyhound or other very different dog breeds, we would be unlikely to consider the two fossils as individuals of the same species or able to interbreed. And she, she posits that this is an example of the limits of information that can be gathered from the fossil record. And she, it's interesting, she concludes her uh, chapter by saying humans have pushed selection to the extreme in the various domestic dog breeds, yet they've been unable to create any species other than a domestic dog an indication that different kinds of animals are not the result of evolution but were created originally as described in, in Genesis. So I thought that was a very um, interesting, insightful um, observation um, by um, a, a person who uh, trains vets, has a lot of experience in, in veterinary um, animals, um, Dr... Uh, Greer uh, uh, trained um, at uh, the University of uh, Missouri. You know, I, th- I think quite, you know, for something that we have around us all the time, that uh, when you think about around the world, how many, you know, millions and, uh, you know, possibly billions of dogs have, have been bred and so forth um, over, you know, the past thousand years. A uh, few thousand years, and um, they're still dogs. They haven't changed. They haven't evolved, despite all this breeding and and uh, crossbreeding and and so forth. I thought that I, th- I thought that was um, quite relevant, actually. Another interesting article, you know, thinking about uh, very common animals, is um, the the differences between saltwater and and freshwater. Uh, fishes, and because one of the arguments that, that that comes up then, of course, if you have the um, you know Noah's flood, you have massive changes in the salinity or so forth of the water at that time, with the fresh water or um, the the water from the fountains of the the deep. Um, you know, what about the survival of things like like fish? Um, and it's interesting, and I found it quite fascinating that some fish can live in salt water and then go into fresh water, and of course vice versa. Um, on my property, we have dams, and we have a lot of eels in the dams, and uh, we know that those eels then go out to sea and migrate north um, in salt water. Um, and they're quite fascinating, you know, creatures in that they can. Um, you know, travel across the land uh, overnight. Don't usually see them during the day, but understand they well. They have to travel across land to get into our dams. But um, this is uh, quite you know quite fascinating. Of course, the whole idea of the salmon that live in the oceans and then uh, travel upstream. And so it was quite fascinating to read a very interesting um, article on. Um, the design and the evidence for design in um, in in fishes, and um, it's um, by a, 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 a the article I was reading was by a, a Dr. Noble Donker, 
who's a professor of biology at Berman University, and he uh, holds a PhD uh, from the University of Alberta in um, in Canada. And um, one of the uh, fascinating things is, of course, that the body fluids of uh, these freshwater fish are more concentrated than the water in which they live. So, for example, in, in freshwater bony fish, the blood osmotic pressure averages about um, uh, uh, 300 uh, milliosmolar higher than the osmotic pressure of freshwater. And so these fish tend to gain water by osmosis and they lose ions by diffusion across their gill membranes. Um, and so this tends, um, this passive flux of water tends to dilute their body fluids. And so um, to avoid the excess water, the kidneys of freshwater animals and freshwater fish produce copious amounts of urine. Um, and, and I thought it was quite interesting that for, and ma- many uh, folk have goldfish, that uh, goldfish might excrete um, urine each day equivalent to one-third of its body weight. So um, it's, it's interesting that in fresh, these freshwater animals have to take up uh, the ions like sodium and chloride and calcium um, um, through uh, you know, food intake. Um, but when we look at the body fluids of marine fishes, they're far more diluted than the seawater in which they live. And so such fish have a blood osmotic pressure of only about 300 to 500 uh, milliosmolar. And um, so, and of course, the osmotic pressure of seawater is you know, much, much higher. Uh, more than double, almost triple, up to triple. Uh, so therefore, these fish tend to lose water by osmosis. And of course, they're gaining ions for diffusion. So when you think about it, we've got two systems that are quite opposite here. So this is quite complex, not only quite complex biochemistry that is involved here, but we've also got quite complex and quite different physiology requirements to enable this different biochemistry to occur. So it's interesting, in these fishes in the salt water, uh, they absorb water from the seawater in their gut um, and they must actively take up sodium chloride uh, and thereby increasing their problem of salt loading. Therefore, their kidneys make urine that is um, approximately, you know, similar osmosis to uh, osmotic pressure to blood plasma, um, but um, is very rich in some of the, um, you know, the ions that are excreted across the gills. So it, it's a very, very different biochemistry that is involved. So how can they swap? How can they, how can they change? It's interesting that most biologists describe the saltwater, the, the freshwater salt relations in fishes as an evolutionary vestige. In other words, their body fluids have evolved as they've adapted to their origins in the ocean and then later invasion to fresh waters and then reinvasion to the oceans millions of years ago. 
Um, and so they say that these changes occurred over millions of years. But it's very interesting that in modern fish, in the fish that we see today, these changes can occur actually very rapidly. It's very interesting that uh, Dr. Donker uh, suggests that uh, marine and freshwater fishes were actually created with the different designs for different water salinities. In other words, they were pre-programmed to cope with both these salinities. And so, and he points out that some species are designed to be able to adjust their gill and kidney function to enable them to move between environments with radically different salt levels. So fish that hatch in fresh water and migrate to seawater when they mature and then return to freshwater spawn, they're anadromous fish, of course, um, and they can spend, you know, one to several years at sea, feeding and growing, and then return to their natural stream where they were born to breed. And salmon are a classic example of this. Um, and so these fish, like salmon, they can tolerate really wide swings in salinity as they migrate between the fresh and salt water. Um, and... Um, when these fish swim into the freshwater, the major physiological challenge, of course, is coping with the salt loss across their gills because that's what they're designed to, to do. Um, but uh, they adjust relatively quickly. They adjust in a period of weeks, not millions of years. Um, and um, this is often spent by spending some time in brackish water, so it's water where the, where the salt levels have been uh, diluted with the mixture of uh, incoming fresh water. And so uh, we have um, what they call catadromous fishes, which migrate in the opposite direction from seawater to fresh water. Uh, so they mature in streams and migrate in the oceans to breed. Uh, such as eels. Um, and again, these fish change over a few weeks, not millions of years. And he, um, he argues that um, anadromous and catadromous fishes illustrate how the interventionist hypothesis of creation of fishes, in other words, that God created fish with these abilities, um, uh, living in streams and seas and the subsequent global flood explains the data much better than the hypothesis of gradual evolution. Um, and what he says is the creationist or uh, model proposes that design was already in place to permit them to survive in a variety of environments because they could adapt to rapid changes in salinity, including those that may have occurred during the flood. Um, and he concludes, it's uh, quite an interesting chapter, it's quite uh, you know, technical in uh, some aspects. Uh, again, in this book, uh, Design and Catastrophe, 51 Scientists Explore Evidence in Nature, that was published by Andrews University Press, uh, Dr. Donker concludes, if we believe that fish were created, they could have been designed with the genetic information to adapt to changing water conditions. And um, on the contrary, random processes seem utterly 
incapable of producing the molecular structures responsible for gill and kidney function in waters of different salinity. And he says, I conclude that the manner in which fish regulate their water balance and internal iron concentrations points to an intelligent design. And I think this is another important factor, you know, when we look at um, how the complexity of the biochemistry that controls the regulation of salt levels uh, within uh, the fish, whether they live in salt water or whether they live in fresh water, they need these ions, sodium, chlorine, calcium and so forth, as part of their metabolism, as part of the biochemistry of their living organisms. And these levels have to be maintained um, uh, maintained a level with a very tight tolerance, otherwise the animal will die. It's just like if we get significant levels in the changes in those ions in our blood plasma, we'll end up very quickly with a very high blood pressure or very low blood pressure, and if this goes on for any substantial length of time, we'll die. Um, and, of course, if there's too wide a swing in that um, level in our blood, we'll die very quickly. <laughs> such as, you know, we change a, a level in uh, potassium ions, um, and uh, which is, uh, you know, a method of, uh, of uh, legal et- execution in some countries. Um, so this is one of the important factors that the chemistry involved um, in enabling these changes and enabling this adaptab- adaptability um, is impossible to have evolved over millions of years. Um, and particularly since the requirements for, res- for survival mean that uh, these changes have to occur just in weeks. So as I thought about these articles, I thought, you know, some common things that we see around us point to a creator, point to a, a super intelligent creator that has made so many interesting forms of lives, just in the examples of all the different types of dogs and their skulls, just in you know the classic examples of, of fish that we buy, perhaps in the you know supermarkets. There are you know tins of fish, tins of salmon, these sort of things that are sold around the world, and these fish illustrate these um, these amazing design characteristics that point to a creator. And, of course, the Bible tells us that this creator is a loving God that wants to have a relationship, that we are the pinnacle of his creation, that we were created with minds that can communicate with God. And the Bible you know, speaks about this point very clearly, particularly in the book of John um, in the New Testament, that God, and, and Jesus explained this himself, that God desires to have this relationship with us and that we shouldn't die, that we should have eternal life by choosing to him, believing in him. Um, it's, it's a wonderful promise. So I encourage you all to, to read and become familiar with the Bible. If God can design the amazing fish and do- dogs, he can certainly give us eternal life as, as well. Uh, so you've been listening to Faith and Science. And remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, just Google uh, 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. 
Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 